We're going to continue our sermon series this morning in the book of Genesis. And so I invite you to turn with me in Scripture to Genesis chapter 43. Genesis chapter 43. We're going to study this chapter together. Last week we looked um, at Genesis 42 and we talked about how we're confronted with grace and we're accountable for what we do with God's grace. And I told you last week that Genesis 42 and 43 should be considered together. They tell almost the same story, uh, but they have to be read together because, uh, you know, they, they, they each serve one another well. They, they reinforce some key ideas. And, and really, I, I almost attempted to preach both chapters together last week, but I didn't figure you wanted to sit here for an hour. And so uh, we, we put this one off to this week. But last week, we were confronted with grace. And this week, we're going to be comforted with mercy. All right, so confronted with grace and comforted by mercy. On July the 8th, 1741, Puritan pastor Jonathan Edwards climbed into the pulpit of the Enfield Congregational Church to deliver his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. For close to an hour, I'm going to emphasize that, for close to an hour, he preached <laughs> about the imminence of death, the reality of hell, and the wrath of God. At one moment, he said these words, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. According to eyewitnesses on that day, such conviction fell over the congregation that they were hear, heard to be moaning weeping, and even screaming as he preached. I'm not going to choose to emulate or copy or even come close to that tone of fire and brimstone preaching as we call it, but I do think we should commend Edwards for one thing. He drew attention to what is known as the mercy of God, the mercy of God. So often we want to take God's grace and God's mercy and consider them to be one in the same. But there is a subtle difference between the two that contributes to understanding both of them. And fire and brimstone preaching, like that of Edwards, really majored on the mercy of God, whereas we often major on the grace of God. I want you to write these definitions down because there is a critical difference between mercy and grace. So if you got that listening guide, I've got a place in there for the definitions. Mercy. Mercy is God withholds the punishment that we deserve. God withholds the punishment that we deserve. So in other words, this is the wrath of God that is directed at sinners, and only because of his mercy does he withhold the punishment that we deserve. That's why Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry, wrathful God. But grace... Grace is this, God gives us the blessings that we do not deserve. So you can see there's a subtle difference there. One is God with, withholding his wrath. He, he's, he's withholding the punishment that we deserve because of sin. But in place of that wrath, he goes to the infinite reaches of grace and he gives us the blessings that we do not deserve. The passage before us in Genesis 43 paints a picture of mercy. 
a picture of mercy as Joseph spares his brothers from the punishment that they deserved. You see, as the brothers begin their return to see their brother, they are consumed by dread and fear. But by the end of their interaction with their brother in Egypt, they have peace and they have joy. So like Joseph's brothers, here's what I hope we learn from this passage through their experience. God's people have peace because they've received his mercy. God's people have peace because they've received his mercy. Here's my challenge to you this morning. Are you at peace? Are you at peace? I mean, really, does peace flood your soul? Or are you troubled by maybe the uncertain condition you're living in? Maybe it's the uncertain world we live in. Maybe the economic realities that we're faced with, the cultural shifts that seem to happen every single day trouble our souls. Maybe it's a little more personal. Maybe you're walking through some health difficulties or, or some things that you didn't see coming financially. Maybe a job situation or maybe there's some division in your family. The challenge from this passage is this. When we appreciate when we truly understand the rich mercy of God, we have no reason not to be at peace. Because peace is more than just what we see in eternity. We can have peace right now. We can have peace right now because of God's mercy. I invite you to stand, well actually remain seated because it's a long passage. Genesis 43, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the first 14 verses so we can really uh, take in everything that's taking place here. Genesis 43, beginning in verse 1. Now, the, the famine in the land was severe. When they had used up the grain they had brought back from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, the man specifically warned us, you will not see me again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go. For the man said to us, you will not see me again unless your brother is with you. Why have you caused me so much trouble? Israel asked, or Jacob also asked. Why did you tell the man that you even had another brother? They answered, the man kept asking about us and our family. Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And we answered him accordingly. How could we know that he would say, bring your brother here? Then Judah said to his father Israel, send the boy with me. We will be on our way so that we may live and not die, neither we nor you nor our dependents. I will be responsible for him. You can hold me personally accountable. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will be guilty before you forever. If we had not delayed, we could have come back twice by now. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your packs and take them down to the man as a gift, a little balsam and a little honey, aromatic gum and resin, pistachios and almonds. 
Take twice as much silver with you. Return the silver that was returned to you in the top of your bags. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back at once to the man. May God Almighty cause the man to be merciful to you so that he will release your other brother and Benjamin to you. As for me, if I'm deprived of my sons, then I'm deprived. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your mercy. God, may your word make it clear today. God, we pray that this word is not just clear, but it's also convicting. And God, that you would do a work by the power of your spirit in our souls. That as you've done a work in mine through the reading and the study of this word, God, you would also do a work in all of us for your honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this passage, we're going to see three reasons that we can trust God's mercy. You see, I want to take a step beyond where that old Puritan preacher was. Right? And, he, and, and he did a great job of painting a picture of God's wrath and his mercy. But, but I want you to leave here today with, with not like you're, you're dangling over the pit of hell, but rather that you can have assurances. You can be certain that God's mercy, it is going to happen in your life. That God does indeed have a firm grip on you by his mercy. First, consider this. We receive mercy because God is sovereign. We receive mercy because God is sovereign. Now, by, the, by now, this issue of the sovereignty of God uh, is not a new matter to us, not just in the story of Joseph's life, but in the entire Bible, in, in Genesis, certainly. And we talk about this a lot here at First Baptist Cave Spring. We saw last week that, that God was sovereign over the natural events. The, the, even, even the famine that was happening in the land was not by chance. No, God was sovereign over that. But secondly, we also saw that God is so sovereign over human activity. Right? Even the notion that, that Joseph had ascended from the pit to the palace was a testimony of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty simply means that he's in control at all times. He never once has lost control. But to really emphasize this, we got to see the, uh, the condition that Jacob's family was in in these first 14 verses in particular. Notice this. Jacob's family was incapable of saving themselves from their desperate situation. There was a famine in the land, and there's that, that phrase at the beginning, that the famine in the land, it was severe is the word that is used. But notice also back in chapter 42 and verse 38, Jacob answered his sons, my son will not go down with you, for his brother is dead and this one alone is left. He, he says basically, listen, there's no real hope here. I'm not letting you go back and get more food. And so we get to chapter 43, and that's the irony of all of this. Jacob's hand is forced into this conversation. Why? Because they're about to starve to death. Life and death literally hung in the balance for Jacob and his family. That's why in verse 8, Judah says these words, we need to go so that we can live and not die. This is a key theme in Genesis, right? God creates life, and then Genesis 3 happens. And then death and sin enter the world. And then throughout the book of Genesis, and I told you last week, throughout the entire Bible, it is this testimony of God giving life where there once was death. Not only was 
death and life hanging in the balance, but also their family was divided. You saw the conversation happen there. You saw the exchange. And, and Jacob's family, we know from the book of Genesis, was a mess. <laughs> in verses 3 through 10, Judah, Judah debated with his father in a most harsh way. I won't go into the, the Hebrew language here, but a lot of this conversation happens in short two-word sentences. Okay? You ever heard someone tell you, you know, kind of short, they're getting a little short with you? That's what's happening here in their family. And, and it, this, this, uh, this conversation, this exchange was certainly a, a confrontation. But it's interesting to note that Judah, who was the fourth son, was the one speaking. Again, that testifies to the divided nature in this family. It shouldn't have been Judah talking to Jacob. He was the fourth son. So how did it happen? Well, if you haven't been with us in Genesis, you, you, you need to be reminded that Reuben, right, he was guilty of incest. Genesis chapter 35 and verse 22, we find out about his sin. It, it, again, Jacob's family was a mess. And then there's Simeon and Levi, who, sons two and three, uh, they committed genocide in chapter 34. They were bloodthirsty, ruthless killers. And so with those three eliminated, only Judah was available, the fourth son, to even have this conversation. But then they voiced little hope about the future. You could just see the hopelessness, hear the hopelessness in their voices. Verses 11 through 13 Jacob seems to resign to the inevitable, and he voices little hope. He says, finally, if it must be so, go on your way. And then in verse 14, at the end of uh, that exchange, his parting words to his son, you can hear it in his voice. If I'm deprived of my sons, I'm deprived. In other words, he resigned to the sovereign hand of God. But listen, it doesn't have to be hopelessness when you resign to the sovereign hand of God. No, it doesn't have to be this way. Notice this. God's ability to keep his promises prove that he is sovereign. Prove that I wrestle with the word to put in there, whether sovereign or capable, right? It, it proves that God is capable of holding on to you and extending mercy to you and me. Why? Because he keeps his promises. How do we know this? Well, in Jacob's parting words to his son, he says, God Almighty, may God Almighty be with you. What does that title mean? It wasn't just in passing that he said it. It wasn't just by chance that he said it. He didn't just say, God be with you. No, he used a very unique and particular name and title for God. You see, in Genesis, this name is associated over and over again with the blessings of God, the promises of God, and the presence of God. And so it was coming from his lips in a very intentional way. Why? Because throughout the generations in Genesis, God Almighty, it spoke of God's ability to keep his promises. The first time it shows up, Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. God comes to Abraham and he reaffirms his covenant with him. And here's what God says to, to Abraham. He says, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence. God Almighty. God's saying to, to Abraham then, I've got this. I'm not going to fail to come through. Genesis 28 and verse 3. Isaac then passes this on to Jacob, and he says, May God Almighty bless you. 
That's why in Genesis 35, in verse 11, as it passes down through the generations, uh, this affirmation is given to Jacob as well by God himself. God says, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Don't you see it? God keeps his promises. And so when, when Jacob tells his sons, may God Almighty go before you, literally what he's saying is, listen, he's kept his promises before. It's my hope that he's going to keep them for you now. Listen, we have the privilege of knowing some things, though, that Jacob did not regarding the promises of God. We have the privilege of not looking forward to what was going to happen in Egypt for the brothers. No, we have the privilege of looking back at God's faithfulness and his willingness and his ability, his capability to keep his promises. Listen, if God in his sovereignty could give us Jesus to suffer the death that we deserve, to save us from the penalty that we deserve, then we can certainly trust God's mercy every single day of our lives. So Judah and his brothers, they left for Egypt. After the long journey, they, they were met with a surprising blessing once they arrived. Make note of this. We're going to learn this with them. We receive mercy because God is personal. God's sovereign. But throughout Scripture, we hold it in balance with God being personal or God being near. Notice how this plays out, verses 15 through 19. I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, the men took this gift, double the amount of silver, and Benjamin. They immediately went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his steward, Take the men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare it, for they will eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph had said and brought them to Joseph's house. But the men were afraid because they were taken to Joseph's house. They said, we've been brought here because of the silver that was returned in our bags the first time. They intend to overpower us, to seize us, make us slaves, and to take our donkeys. God bless those donkeys. <laughs> so they approached Joseph's steward and they spoke to him at the doorway of the house. Listen, these guys had every reason to be afraid. Let's not overlook that. Remember, they didn't know who Joseph was yet. Don't lose sight of that. That revelation has not happened yet, and it's not going to happen in this chapter either. And so they had every reason to be afraid. Why would this, uh, this Egyptian ruler, why would this guy who's in charge single them out from all of the other crowds that had came to Egypt that day? Keep in mind, there were crowds of people coming to Egypt for food. And, and Joseph says, hey... Take this bunch of knuckleheads, and I want you to take them to my house. And we're going to get ready for dinner. I think of those old cartoons. You might have watched these when uh, they're, they're preparing the fire, and the unsuspecting character in the story, they're actually going to be dinner. Remember those stories? Uh, that might have been what they were thinking. They're thinking, listen, this is, this is bad, fellas. We've really messed up, and we're in real trouble. So they plead their case before the servant. Notice verses 20 through 22. I'm going to read it to you. They said, my Lord, so a word of respect. They recognized their predicament. We really did come down here the first time only to buy food. And remember, the accusation in chapter 42 was they were spies. When we came to the place where we lodged for the night and opened our bags of grain, each one's silver was at the top of his bag. It was the full amount of our silver, and we've brought it back to you with us. We've brought additional silver with us to buy more food. We don't know who put our silver in our bags. 
So they're pleading their case, right? They're, they're making their best attempt to say, listen, we, we really are innocent. Don't, don't cook us for dinner, okay? Verse 23, notice the surprising response from the servant. Then the steward said, may you be well. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father must have put treasure in your bags. I received your silver. And then he brought Simeon out to them. Now, this is subtle, and we might read past it quickly, but I really want you to key in on a few words here. Joseph's servant had a lot to say in that reply. First, Joseph's servant testified that God's reach was much further than the brothers may have expected. Right? Here's how this happens. He says, may you be well, is the way he begins. Now, in the English, we miss this, okay? But this is the Hebrew word for shalom. Even if we don't know Hebrew, you've probably heard that before. Shalom means peace be with you. It was a distinctive and customary Hebrew greeting. Now, if you're the brothers, you're in Egypt, you've been taken to Joseph's house, and there's this Egyptian servant standing in front of you, and he utters this customary Hebrew greeting, peace be with you. These guys almost fell out, right? Why in the world was this Egyptian speaking Hebrew? This was crazy. But then notice what he also says. The God of your father must have put it back in your bags. Wait a minute. Hold on. If you're the brothers, you're thinking, what's happening here? What, what does this Egyptian know about the God of our Father? We've traveled all this distance. We're supposed to be the only ones who know about shalom and peace and the God of our Father. How does this Egyptian know this? Why? Because God's reach was much further than they ever would have expected. They were surprised by this. But notice this also. Joseph's servant testified that God had worked through human activity to bring about his intended purposes. Now, this gets old to us by this point in Genesis because God's been doing this. He's been working through human efforts and means and bringing about his intended purposes all along. But this was still news to Joseph's brothers. Joseph had learned this. Remember, he was the one who was sold into slavery. He was the one who, after he was sold into slavery, ascended to the throne. Then he was accused, thrown into the pit. And then through God working through human means, brought him back to the palace. Joseph knew this, but the brothers hadn't yet learned it. Now, what the servant describes here is not a miracle. He's not trying to be clever. When he says, the God of your father put this back in your bag, really what he was saying is, God was working all along. God's been working through this situation. And again, don't miss this. This is a pagan Egyptian saying this to them. God's reach was further. God was working through human activity. What does this tell us about God? What does this tell us now? We see the lesson that they were learning, but what about us? Here it is. God is involved, friends. God is personal. God is near. God doesn't just put things in motion and then just walk away. He's intimately involved in our lives. Jesus coming to this earth to be born as a baby in a manger. 
living this painful earthly existence through all of the things that we would also experience, going to the sinner's cross, the cross that we deserved, all of that testifies to this same God from Genesis, that he's involved, that he's personal, that he's near. God is not just this this gray-headed, bearded guy up in the sky. No, it's not this pie-in-the-sky kind of reality. No, God is near. He's personal, friends. No matter what you're walking through today, listen. God's with you. He's with you. He's near. Hebrews 4, 15, you know this passage perhaps. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, we have one who has been tempted in every way as we were, yet without sin. God's personal. He's involved. Joseph's servant testified that God had went before the brothers in a most unusual way that they did not expect. And he was working on their behalf. So now the brothers were prepared to meet Joseph again. They were stunned. (laughs) What's going on here, they thought, but they hadn't put the pieces together. And as they sat at the table for dinner with Joseph, here's what they learned, and we learn with them. We receive mercy because God is gracious. God's gracious. You see how it comes full circle, right? Grace of God, mercy of God. It is intertwined with one another, but the brothers had to come face to face with the penalty that they actually deserved in order to understand the grace of God that was now going to be given to them. Notice verses 26 through 30. Verses 26 through 30. When Joseph came home, they brought in the gift that they had carried into the house, and they bowed to the ground before him. He asked if they were well. There's that shalom again, by the way. Well is peace. So they hear it from Joseph now. They were stunned yet again. He he, he says, uh, excuse me, I lost my place. He asked if they were well, and he said, how is your elderly father that you told me about? Is he still alive? They answered, your servant, our father, is well. He's at peace. He is still alive. And they knelt low and they paid homage to him. When he looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he asked, is, is this your youngest brother that you told me about? And then he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with emotion for his brother and he was about to weep. He went into an inner room and he wept there. Grace is written all over this interaction. It's so clear. But let's make note of it anyway. Listen, first, Joseph spoke about God's grace. He spoke about God's grace. Now the connection here, I'll be honest with you, there's times in my study where I just begin to just worship. (laughs) I'll be be reading and I'll be studying and, and I'll have the commentaries laid out on my desk and I'll be working hard on this sermon. And a lot of it is work. I mean, there's no doubt about it. There's work involved. But it's worship. Let me show you what happens in worship. You ready? He says, may God be gracious to you, my son. Church, this is not foreign to us. We know this statement. I'm giving you a moment. I'm I'm holding it out there for you. Make the connection. Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2. Amen. Somebody said it. 
May God be gracious to you and bless you. We don't say that passively. It's intentional. Why? Because it speaks to the very mercy and character of God. So Joseph says, may God be gracious to you, my son. My son meaning this very intimate connection. But then, he didn't just talk about it. He shared about it. Joseph shared God's grace with them. Look at verses 31 through 34. Joseph had washed his face, it says, in verse 31. He came out, regaining his composure. He said, serve the meal. They served him by himself, his brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who were eating with them by themselves because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews since that is detestable to them. This was just a cultural reality at that time. This segregation that was happening was isolated to that culture. Verse 33. This is a key though. This is key though. They were seated before him in order by age from the firstborn to the youngest. The men looked at each other in astonishment. Portions were served to them from Joseph's table, and Benjamin's portion was five times larger than any of theirs. They drank and became drunk with Joseph. Joseph shared God's grace with them. Here's here's what's going on here. Joseph painted a picture for them of their relationship before Egypt ever happened. And he did this in a most unusual way that made them astonished. They hadn't told Joseph what their ages were, and guess what? In that culture, they would have probably been in very close proximity in ages. It's kind of hard to tell the difference, right? And so when Joseph knew, and he set them down, they had to think, something's up here. And then Benjamin, the youngest, he gets a portion five times larger. Why is that significant? Because Joseph is is copying, he's reliving the favoritism shown to him that made them jealous to begin with. And so you got to think, they're revisiting all of this experience. They may not be voicing the dots being connected, but Joseph is showing them grace by walking them slowly back through their past. And that's where mercy comes in. Because mercy testifies to what? What do we say? It's when God withholds the wrath and punishment that we deserve. You got to think, as they sat there at that table, and they had grace just lavished on them, at the same time, Joseph was showing them, hey guys, (laughs) I hadn't forgot, and neither have you. And and you got to think to themselves, they're thinking, oh my, does he know? Does he know what, who we are? That's mercy. Mercy. Because they didn't get what they deserved. To appreciate the grace shown in the coming chapters of Genesis, we got to first take note of the mercy that's so clear in Genesis 43. Mercy is when God withholds the punishment we deserve, grace, God gives us the blessings that we do not deserve. Jonathan Edwards' sermon, by the way, back in the 18th century, it gave birth to what is known as the First Great Awakening, a revival that spanned years. Why did that happen? 
Edwards forced his listeners to behold the mercy of God as they pondered the punishment that they deserved apart from grace. Why is this stunning to us? It's stunning to us because we are grace-hungry people. We like to talk about grace, right? We like to talk about the rewards of God's favor. We have an entire false gospel built around that known as the prosperity gospel. Why do you think that happens? Because we love talking about grace. We love talking about blessings. How dare we if we never come face to face with the reality that it's only that we have grace because God is first merciful. He's merciful. Here's my challenge to you. Grace is cheap without mercy. It's cheap. Don't buy into cheap grace. Two things need to happen today. Some of you have never come face to face with the mercy of God. Maybe it's uncomfortable. Maybe it's something you don't want to talk about. Apart from God withholding his punishment in your life, apart from God because of his love sparing you, apart from that, an eternal hell waits for you. Come face to face with that for a minute. Just ponder on that for a minute. To appreciate the grace of God, friends, we gotta understand our brokenness first. We might think we're put together. We might think that we have it all together. But apart from the grace of God and the mercy of God, we're nothing. So some of you, need to come face to face with that reality. Confess your sin before God, this holy God, and, and cling to the grace of God. Why? Because you've began to understand the penalty due to you apart from God's mercy and grace. And so confess that sin. Run to God. Cling to him. Ask him to forgive you and walk with him in new life. But for some of us, for some of us, uh, maybe we've become reacquainted with all of this. What should this do in our lives? It should drive us to worship, first of all. To recognize the holiness of God in a new and fresh way. To have a peace now that may otherwise be elusive. But also, it should drive us to mission. Because there is a world outside of these walls that does not know their need for God's grace. And because we know the penalty of what happens apart from that grace, we need to share that with others. That's evangelism. That's missions. So I encourage you, share that with a family member. Share that with a loved one. Share that with a coworker. Be on mission before God. This is not something just reserved for me as your pastor or other leaders in this church. No, this is the responsibility of every saint of God. Take hold of that mission and walk with the Lord in his mercy and his grace. I'm going to invite you to stand. Now I invite our, our prayer team to come down front like they do every week. These folks are here to encourage you, to pray with you. I'm here to encourage you and to pray with you. And I encourage you to respond at this moment. This is, this is your opportunity. 
We're not going to play on your emotions or anything like that. But as we sing, I encourage you to respond. Why is it important to respond now? Well, because I know that in my life, every time I responded to an invitation like this, that's cemented in my memory forever. And maybe for you, it's to commit to be on mission with God. Well, listen, let's cement that commitment today. You say, God, I'm a, I'm a blank check before you. Do in my life whatever you want to do. Listen, this is revival. That's what this looks like. When God's people take hold of the mission of God in a new and fresh way, that fans the flame of revival. And so I encourage you, whether you've been here for five minutes, five years, 55 years, listen, this is for you. But also, if you've never given your life to Jesus, this is most certainly for you. I encourage you as we sing, have the courage and the boldness to come forward and respond to the invitation to the gospel. Let's pray.